Not long before his crucifixion, Jesus had encouraged his disciples, saying, don't worry when you stand trial about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will speak through you in that moment. Now, I doubt that Theophilus, who was the first recipient of the book of Acts, remember, I doubt he would have ever guessed that this third trial that the apostle Peter had to face was going to be among his own brothers in the church. It wasn't official, of course, but it was serious. A faction of Christians contend against Peter and his part in preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And what follows in our text tonight is a tense exchange that seems to us to be totally ungracious, overtly racist, obviously unchristian, right? But is it fair for us to see it that way? Should they have seen things the way that we see them now? We, of course, have the benefit of thousands of years of church history and the completed revelation of Scripture. And part of that revelation, which these believers didn't yet have, would later be Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he explains that God had revealed to him, Paul, a mystery, something previously unknown to the church. He said, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders, but now you have been united with Christ. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. And so Paul said that to the Ephesians about this issue. And after all, hadn't God for thousands of years said that Israel was a special, separate, called out people among the nations of the earth? Hadn't God forbidden the Jews from marrying the Gentiles, being assimilated into their nations or societies? On the other hand... Why weren't the Jewish Christians ready for this next step of including all people in the gospel? Hadn't Jesus given them a clear directive about going into all the world? Now, with the benefit of the Holy Spirit in illuminating their understanding of the Old Testament, couldn't they see God's love for those outside of Israel, for every Hagar, for every Rahab, for every Ruth? Couldn't they see that? For sure, this was a difficult issue. So were the men who opposed Peter right for what they did? You know, sometimes our friends need to stand up to us as Christians. Sometimes they need to tell us where we're going is not where God is leading. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And we should take seriously those moments when fellow Christians who love us come and confront us and say, listen, we think what you're doing is not right. We should take those moments seriously. But when that happens, it certainly doesn't automatically mean that they are correct in their complaint. Remember Job's friends, they came and said a lot of hard things to Job and they were just wrong all the way around. So when we look at this complaint, the case involved and the candor of these guys in Acts 11, it shows an obvious misalignment with the heart of God. These guys that confront Peter, they're saved They're not undercover Pharisees or anything like that. But in the end, we can see that they were absolutely out of step with the Lord, and it led to some very serious errors in the way that they were living, the way that they were relating to Jesus Christ, and the way that they were relating to others. Now, Paul would later state to the church at Corinth in his letter to them, he said, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. And so what we learn is that disagreements are going to crop up in the life of the church at large and the church locally. 
When disagreements or differences arise, we can take a lesson from Acts 11 about how we can proceed and how to be on the Lord's side of the issue, moving forward in grace and not falling into some of the ditches along the way. We're going to begin in verse 1, and there we read this. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. It had maybe only been a week or so since Peter had preached to Cornelius in our last text, but word spread fast through the Christian community. Pretty remarkable, without telephones, without social media, without marketing. Throughout the whole region of Judea, people had heard about what had happened, and really it was big news. This is a big deal. In passing, I just want us all to dog ear this idea from the example of the apostles. They weren't the kinds of guys to hold press conferences to talk about themselves. They didn't go around saying, look at what we're doing and, and, and promote themselves nonstop in that way. You know, we live in a day and age where people seem to feel the need to broadcast everything about themselves and everything that they do in their personal lives or things that they're involved with, different things they're volunteering in, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that it's always wrong to post what you did to serve the Lord on Instagram categorically. But I do notice that it's not the kind of behavior that we see the disciples participating in. And the constant self-admiration that is cultivated through social media today, it really doesn't leave room for the kind of meek and modest humility that Jesus modeled for us, right? So Jesus, uh, when you read the Gospels, there were a lot of reasons for it, but when he went around healing people, he would frequently say, don't tell anybody that I healed you, okay? Because he didn't want a mob of people surrounding and crushing in on him and, and saying, well, we want to see this too. And, and so we just, we look at the example of Christ. We look at the example of the apostles. We look at the way that they did some of these things. And it's a pretty far cry from what we see cultivated in the era of social media. Just put that in your back pocket for later, I guess. Verse two says, when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So these are Jewish Christians, they're church members, they're believers, and they were still trying to keep many aspects of the law of Moses. Now, of course, they were picking and choosing. That is something we should note. They wouldn't have been sacrificing animals in the temple anymore, of course. But the other codes of conduct, dietary restrictions, observing days, washing, circumcision, those sorts of things, they were still seen as essential in the eyes of this group. Now, taking a look as the jury in this court-martial, we as readers, we're the jury in this sort of court-martial that they were putting on Peter. We can see that even here, this was no mere personal conviction that these guys were following. This is an issue of culture, of tradition, and of self-righteous legalism. Now, the circumcision party wouldn't have agreed with that assessment, but that is clearly what's happening. It's clearly the case. Now, there are legitimate restrictions that God leads individuals into in their personal walks with him. We talk about Christian liberties. Some Christians have certain liberties and some Christians do not have certain liberties. Of course, there are broader boundaries that we are all commanded to obey, right? There are broad commands for every Christian right? Uh, but then there are all of these non-essential issues about living out the Christian faith and things God calls 
his individuals to do. And for some, he gives certain liberties, and for others, he gives other liberties. And so we're not talking about the broad boundaries that all of us are supposed to fit into, but rather on the individual level, we know that God asked some of his people to do or to not do certain things that he does not ask of everyone in the whole group. Celibacy is a good example, right? The New Testament says that God will give some Christians the gift of celibacy. And if they are given that gift, God is asking them to not be married and that that is something that he is asking them to do. And he does not ask all Christians to do that. Another example given to us in the two Simons of chapters nine and 10. Simon Peter, we know, had been asked by God to leave his nets, right? He had a trade. He had grown up and was a fisherman, a good fisherman, strong, able to, to carry out his duty well, catch a lot of fish. When Jesus said, I want you to follow me, packaged up with that was he was saying, and I want you to leave your nets. I want you to leave those things behind because I have a certain calling for your life. And he did. He left those nets. We don't see Peter fishing on the side. The one time we see him say, I'm going fishing, is in a low moment, right after he had denied the Lord and it seemed like everything had been defeated. And he says, in sort of a moment of exasperation and desperation, I'm going fishing. And then we have that wonderful scene where Jesus is cooking breakfast on the beach and he restores Peter. And we understand he jumps out of the boat. He leaves it again so that he can follow after his Lord. So the one of the Simons in this passage, he was asked to leave his nets behind. And that's fine. That's great. But think about the other Simon. We know that Peter is staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. He's a Christian. He's a believer. Uh, he is you know, being used by God and all of that. When we look at him, he was not asked to leave his tents or to leave his leather work behind. He remained there, working the hides as a faithful Christian. And so both of these Simons were used by God, both were led by God, but there were different requirements on their lives, and that's fine. So how can we tell the difference between self-righteous legalism and spirit-led convictions? Well, the circumcision party here gives us a few ways to tell. First of all, this was an absolutely partisan affair. They came as card-carrying circumcisionists. They said, hey, we are the circumcision party. Oh, I wonder what you're going to talk to me about. Probably circumcision. But we see they had a preset bias that colored all of their discussion. It colored their thinking. They said, okay, we are here not to hear about what had really happened or not to hear about what the Lord might be doing. We're here to talk about this particular issue that we are biased upon because we are of the circumcision party. We note that they were categorically opposed to even the idea that people who weren't a part of their party would not only be given the gift of salvation, but that Peter would even pay them a visit. That's pretty remarkable. They come to Peter, the great apostle, and they say, you know what? We don't even like the idea that you were willing to go talk to someone who wasn't part of our group. And so we see that this isn't an issue of, of personal leading. No, this is a self-righteousness, a legalism that had infiltrated the way this group of people were thinking. The biggest indicator of legalism is this. They wanted to force their conviction onto everyone else. Listen, if God leads you to follow a certain diet as a matter of conscience, that's fine. That's between you and God. Do what he says. But conviction is for the individual. Legalism is put on everyone else. Where I say, 
God wants really good Christians do this, and that means you have to do it. And we're not talking about an essential issue. We're not talking about things that obviously all Christians should do or should not do. We're talking about these areas of liberty, these areas of personal conviction. And the biggest sign that something is not personal conviction but is legalism is when someone comes and tries to put on you some rule or regulation that the Lord has not put on you. So if the Lord leads you in some issue as a matter of conscience, obey what he says. When someone comes to you though and draws a line in the sand, not about a truly essential issue like the deity of Christ or the virgin birth or the resurrection or overt sin or anything like that, but when someone comes in front of you and draws a line in the sand about some application of the Christian life, some behavior, some observance, when they come and try to force on you some mode of being, that is legalism. And Paul said clearly in Ephesians 2 that God has ended the system of law with its commandments and its regulations. He said it overtly, period. So beware of legalists trying to chain you up in self-righteousness. What do we see when these men come before Peter? Rather than celebrate the grace of God opening the door so that more sinners can rush into heaven, they criticized their brother. They should have noticed that their criticism was almost identical to what the Pharisees had said about Jesus back in Luke 15. We don't like who you associate with. We don't approve of the meal that you just had. You ate with sinners and publicans and harlots is what the Pharisees said of Jesus. They didn't care that Jesus was revolutionizing lives and, and telling people to turn from their sin and doing all these wonderful things. They said, we just don't like that you ate with those people. And it's scary that these believers are saying the exact same thing. Now, this would have been a truly difficult moment for Simon Peter. This issue threatened to divide the church altogether. And we know that he felt enormous pressure from this group of Christians in Jerusalem. We'll be told later in Galatians 2, quote, he was afraid of criticism from these guys. Paul outs that for us. But on this day in Acts 11, the Lord made good on his promise to speak through his servants in situations just like this. In his defense, it's clear Peter's goal was not to simply vindicate himself or get back into these guys' good opinion, but his goal is to magnify God's grace and to try to bring these guys along. That's an important element too. Peter doesn't have a knee-jerk reaction and immediately kick these guys out. He doesn't quickly form up a group around himself and devolve into party politics. Well, you're of this party. Well, I'm on that party and get into a big old shouting match. In times of division within the church, the goal should be unity. Now, it's not always possible, but that always should be a goal as we vigilantly defend grace. So it's not that Peter needed to compromise. He doesn't compromise, but we also see him have the heart to bring these guys along and say, okay, here's what's going on. I don't wanna just kick you out. I'm not gonna compromise on what the Lord is doing, but here's what's happening. Why don't you come with us? Why don't you open your hearts to the possibility of God doing this new thing? Let's look at what Peter said. Verse four says, Peter began to explain to them step by step. He doesn't play the apostle card. He didn't say, I'm Peter, deal with it. He didn't say, I'm casting vision. You just get in line behind whatever I wanna do. He didn't threaten to sue them or start a campaign against them. Instead, he walked them slowly, step by step through God's leading and through his work in this situation. Peter's gonna highlight God's word. He'll highlight God's working wonders. He'll highlight the witnesses. What had happened could be explained and defended according to godly and biblical principles. This is an important 
issue. This is an important element, uh, not only when we deal with disagreements in the church, but just in our own lives, in your own life. When we move in some big decision, some big change, some pivot of opinion or behavior, we should be able to explain how we were led to take that path by the Lord. Because listen, Peter's movements were significant here, but they weren't just done on a whim. God had directed him. Let's take big life choices as an example. As Christians, we believe that God gives us particular gifts and particular opportunities and particular works that we are to discover and walk in. So when a Christian decides to make some big life move, say to another community or to another church or into another career, okay, that, that might, might be fine, but it should be accompanied by identifiable leading from God the Holy Spirit. If a person makes a big change and other Christians come to them and ask, hey, why did you do that? Why did you move to that town or that state? Why did you move to that job? Why did you change churches? If the answer is something like this, well, there's more money over there, or it was easier for me to get over there, that's probably the sign of a problem. Peter takes them step by step through the clear leading of God, proving that this was not some human desire of his, but part of the wonderful work of Jesus Christ. He said, they said, why did you do that? He said, I'll tell you why I did that. Here's how I was led. One, two, three. And he took them step by step through. We're gonna move quickly through the next set of verses as we've commented on them already when they were first shared with us. It says in verse five, I was in the town of Joppa praying, I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I said, for nothing impure or ritually unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, well, God has made clean, you must not call him pure. Now this happened three times and everything was drawn up again into heaven. Here's what we note about Peter's retelling. He doesn't inflate himself in the story. He doesn't reference the fact that he had been working astounding miracles in Joppa. He doesn't make himself look greater or more important than he needed to. And he doesn't remove the warts from the story either. He talks about how, yeah, and I said no to our Lord. These apostles are such a great model for real Christian leadership, the kinds of, of guys that you want to follow in the church. And so I would just say to all of us, beware of swagger. There's an abundance of swagger in Christian personalities today. Beware of it. Verse 11 says, at that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. Hold there for a minute. Any reasonable listener would come to the conclusion that this was an obvious move of God. Peter hadn't gone out looking to stir the pot. He hadn't done all of this to try to stick it to his ultra-conservative brothers. His motivation was spiritual. It wasn't about demographics or market share or influence. He was cooperating in the providential work of God as God led him. As he saw this all unfolding and God said, you wanna be involved with this? And Peter said, okay, Lord, at your word, I will. You know, the Lord doesn't need our devices to spread the word of the gospel, to spread the word about Jesus Christ. What does Peter say there? He says, at that very moment. This whole story with Cornelius shows that our God can harness all of time and all of creation to accomplish his work. Why settle for human schemes when we are invited to participate in providence? 
It seems today that more and more Christians and more and more churches are being swallowed up with an obsession with image and with hype and with cultural machinery found out in the world and trying to mash it into a, you know, a Christian form of one kind or another. That's not how the Lord does things. So be led, be led, be led in how you serve the Lord and in the operations of the church. Verse 12 continues, these six brothers also accompanied me. We went into the man's house. Peter had anticipated that there would be trouble in Jerusalem, or at least that there would need to be an accounting for what was going on. And that reveals just how serious the average Jewish Christian was in their separation from Gentiles, even still. There was clearly no motivation for them to reach the wider world with the gospel. But praise God that he does that impossible thing even through imperfect vessels like us. But we see that Peter acted wisely here. He wasn't just acting out of fear. He wasn't, well, I'll cover my bases so that I don't get in trouble. No, he was acting wisely. Often it's easier for us to think about the division within the early church between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And that's a, a real thing that Luke focuses on in the book. But what was happening here was also monumental from another angle too. You see, at this point, the book of Acts has said that the Christians, after riding out one wave of persecution led by Saul, were now well-respected by the Jewish community. They were interacting still in the temple. There wasn't a lot of friction between them and even the Sanhedrin during these years. But now, having opened the arm to the Gentiles, commentators will point out that a violent wedge is going to be forced between the church and non-Christian Jews. This was the end of the friendly Uh, coexistence of the Jews and the church. In fact, after this text, the next time we visit Jerusalem, we're gonna be seeing a new wave of violent persecution breaking out against the believers and one of the apostles immediately being martyred. And so this is a big deal that what's happening, not just between Jewish Christians who think they still have to follow the law of Moses, but non-Christian Jews who they are living with in Jerusalem. You know, in the news today, we're frequently seeing Christians doing controversial things, especially in the age of COVID. Seems like every day there's some sort of news about this church did this or this pastor said this or or whatever. And 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 there's some controversial things that are being broadcast uh, for the world to see. If they must be done, they should be done wisely and by the true leading of God. Now, if it's the case that God is really leading in these situations, then come what may. And if persecution arises or if you know, friction arises or if a wedge is driven between you know, that ministry and their community, okay, if, if the Lord led it, then come what may. But Peter here must have understood some of the serious implications of his actions. And he carried himself with wisdom bringing these six guys from Joppa along, not only to witness what happened in Caesarea, but also to stand with him in Jerusalem. And you know, we should commend these six guys. They didn't shrink under the pressure. They might not have had a speaking role in this drama, but their part was still very important. Their role was one of presence and support, standing on God's side, even in the face of opposition. Imagine being these guys. They're probably very, very young in the Lord. Who knows how long they've been Christians, but Peter said, hey, you wanna come with me real quick? Sure, I wanna hang out with the apostle Peter. And then all of a sudden you find yourself inside the home of a Roman centurion. Now all of a sudden you find yourself being pressured by you know, these powerful and significant uh, you know, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Maybe some of them were ex-priests, we don't know. And they're being said, hey, what are you guys doing? You guys did something wrong. But these guys, they didn't shrink. They were willing to stand on God's side 
and support Peter. Verse 13 says, he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa, call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. So Peter reminds them here that the issue was salvation. This wasn't about politics or press or anything like that. They were talking about people whose eternal souls hung in the balance, not just one man, but his whole household, and by extension, his whole Gentile world. We're talking about wives and children. We're talking about servants and soldiers. We're talking about uh, an innumerable, innumerable number of people who are about to enter into a Christless eternity. Think of the unsaved masses of humanity walking the earth today. You know, a study done in 2015 suggested that 31% of the world's population identifies as Christian. Let's say, just for argument, that all of those people really are saved who identify as Christians. Let's just say that, okay? That still means that seven out of every 10 people on earth today are headed towards hell. 5.5 billion people are about to lose their lives forever and enter a Christless eternity unless they become born again. So then in the meantime, when we see Christians arguing about whether we should only sing hymns in the church and that you know these people come in and say, you're wrong because you sing worship choruses in the church and you have to do this. This is our conviction and therefore you have to do it too. That's just crazy. Let's keep salvation at the forefront of our minds and remember that there's a goal that we're working towards and a commission that we're carrying out. Verse 16 says, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We note that Peter here, remembering the prophetic word of the Lord, saw a dual fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, this is an important aspect of how we as futurists interpret scripture. Frequently in the Bible, the book of Acts included, we see prophecies having a multi-stage or multi-part fulfillment. It's biblical to read prophecy that way, and really it's the only way to harmonize prophecy in a broad sense. And so sometimes people will balk at that or say, well, you can't, you know, this is, there's only one fulfillment of this prophecy or that prophecy. But we see, not only in history, but even the way that these guys interpreted prophecy was that Bible prophecy can have multi-stage or multi-part fulfillment. Uh, tuck that away too. So by now, through Peter's defense, we see that what had happened was confirmed by a vision, confirmed by the Holy Spirit, confirmed by providence, confirmed by miracles, confirmed by the word of God, confirmed by witnesses. It was all in agreement, all unified together. You know, when Joseph Smith arrives on the scene and says, I've had a vision and I have a new message from God, but then that message contradicts the revelation of scripture, or that message is given also without any witnesses, well, then that's not a biblical message. It's not reliable. We don't need to listen to a message like that. That's not the way God does things. Joseph Smith's an extreme example, but these principles can be brought down to the level of any teaching or any statement made by people who claim to be speaking for God. All of us, because of technology, we have wide access to all sorts of incredible teaching and things, and that's good. That's great. But we need to apply some of these principles and really listen to what's being said and say, okay, does this comport, does this line up with what we are told in Scripture? Is there a testimony around this? Or is this just some guy saying, take my word for it. After all, I'm a holy man, and you need to just listen to me and my new interpretation of these things. Verse 17 says, 
If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? Peter acknowledges here that Cornelius and his household were saved by belief, not by baptism, not by circumcision, not by observing the Sabbath. All people are saved by grace through faith. That's it. As Peter closes his statements, we notice how frighteningly close this whole situation is to that time when they were before the Sanhedrin. Remember, they were on trial earlier. Peter was on trial before the Sanhedrin that time. And what did they say? They said, listen, you guys can complain all you want. We're going to obey God rather than men. And then Gamaliel said, okay, send these guys out. And what did Gamaliel say? He had said, leave these guys alone. We don't want to be fighting against God. But, and, and this is all very similar. But this scene is not between Christians and Sadducees, Sadducees who had illegally voted to kill Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. This is between Christian brothers. And so it's amazing how easily even a spirit-filled believer can wander into serious error. And so we wanna pay attention to our walk with the Lord and pay attention to the way that we do things and are relating to others and keep things like grace and the leading of the Holy Spirit forefront in our minds. You know, with all this talk of God's providence and his power and his might and all of that, how could we possibly hinder him? Peter said, hey, listen, I don't want to hinder the work of the Lord. How could we hinder a God of power like this? Well, the Bible says that we are able to quench the Holy Spirit. The example of the wilderness wanderings of Israel and Peter's own epistle later on reveal that through our choices, we can impact God's timeline in certain ways. How that always works out, we don't exactly know. But think about this. God said to the children of Israel, as part of his drama of redemption, he says, okay, everybody, time to go into the promised land. And they said, no. And then what did God say? He said, well, I guess we all get to wait around for 40 more years. Thanks a lot. And so using what the Bible reveals to us, it took an additional 40 years for the Savior to arrive, right? They pushed off the conquest of the land. They pushed off all of God's promises. They did something that caused God to have to press the pause button for a little while. Now, Peter will later say in his epistle, he'll say, you know, we need to live in such a way that we hasten the coming of the Lord. And you think, wait a minute, how can we hasten the coming of the Lord? It's not really elaborated on, but we interpret it as, okay, we live in such a way that we work and pre preach the gospel and, and do what we need to do because at some point, the last person who's gonna be saved is going to get saved. And the sooner they're saved, the sooner God can come back and complete his program on the earth. So we know that we can quench the Holy Spirit. We know that we have, in some cases, a way to impact God's timetable in some ways that are kind of above our heads. Uh, certainly, we can hinder the work of God in the lives of others by discouraging them or placing burdens on them. So what we do matters, and we don't want to be hindering the Lord's work. When they heard this, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, so then... God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. We weren't there, and so it's hard to say just how these guys reacted to what they had heard. We know that the circumcision problem would dog the church for many years. The way it reads, it seems to me that they held their peace. How could you not? But when they say, so then, it feels more like them admitting the truth than applauding it and celebrating it. 
You know, God's glory will ring out from the rocks if need be, if his people won't praise him. And it seems in this case, it came from the rock hard hearts within them rather than an overflow of excitement and, and rather than just the exuberance of grace. In Jeremiah chapter nine, God laments that the stubbornness of his people's hearts had led them into idolatry and off of the path which was following after him. And it broke God's heart. It resulted in a terrible desolation of the land of the people where God had wanted there to be celebration and fruitfulness and his glory to reign as a light to the whole world. Instead, there was ruin. We wanna be people who are soft-hearted, relying on the leading of the Holy Spirit and ready to do whatever God asks us to do. We should expect divisions and differences to arise from time to time. When they do, we should stand on the side of God's grace, on God's word, God's effort to save, not just clinging to tradition and self-righteousness or bias. If we stand with the Lord, whether on trial before brothers or adversaries, we can know that we have honored our master and done his bidding, magnifying his glory through our lives.